I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a very special, uh, special edition, abbreviated version of our regularly scheduled Cauldron episodes. Today is the Halloween special. Uh, I am a big fan of everything that goes kind of bump in the night and that is mysterious or unexplained. I'm a skeptic, but I really... I find the mysteries of of history and and life very interesting, and so um, I would like to share some of those with you guys tonight. Tonight we've got a couple of different stories for you. I have we're going to start off with the World War One story of the attack of the dead men, and then we're going to the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War in America, and we're going to cover the mysterious green glow known as the angel's glow. And then we have a listener, an Instagram uh, follower and a listener who wrote in a story that is about the Yom Kippur War and the weird way in which life seems to have uh, just a series of coincidences. All right, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, I hope you enjoy it and have a happy and safe Halloween. Before we get stuck in, I just want to say we have officially reached 25,000 downloads since January of this year. And for that, I really want to, uh, I want to thank all of you. I truly appreciate your support. And if you have the time and the energy to do it, go on to whatever iPod or iTunes or whatever the hell it is that you're listening to this on. Uh, leave a review, leave a rating, and subscribe. All right. Next week, we will have a account of Durfel at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, a fictional account that I just uh, finished writing, and then we will come back with the Battle of Passchendaele. All right, have a happy and safe Halloween. So World War I is, is really most well-known because it's the first time that we see the industrialization of warfare on, on a truly epic world scale. And the, one of the other things that is fascinating about World War I and what makes it so lasting and iconic, outside of obviously the, the scope and scale of the, the war, is the use and development of, of more and more effective methods of, of killing each other. And as far as World War I goes, probably, if not the most iconic, then definitely the most feared weapon that was developed during the war was the use of poison gas. The German army had realized early on in the war that 
a mixture of bromine or bromine and chlorine gas really created this, this lethal, deadly concoction. Bromine by itself is, is really just more of a respiratory irritant, but when you combine the two, you create this horrifying hydrochloric acid that will eat and, and devour any moist tissue anywhere that has a, a level of moisture that it can get into and feast on. So the moisture in the person's lungs will eventually be eaten by the acid, and so that's all the soft tissue and mucous membranes within the lungs or within the body that will start to get just dissolved by the acid. The eyes and the nasal cavity can be destroyed or permanently damaged and, and can really bleed tremendously. And even um, any moist skin that is exposed to the gas, the chemicals will, will burn and, and deteriorate pretty rapidly. So truly, though, the, the most horrific harm happens within the lungs. And as they burn from the inside out, that tissue, that soft tissue, the membranes, the mucous membranes within the lungs, they start to, uh, the, the, the victim, the person that's uh, unfortunately inhaled the gas, starts to choke on it. The Germans at the outset of the war were well aware that their mixture, this uh, bromine-chlorine mixture, would be incredibly effective and, and would likely cause rapid death even within minutes for anybody exposed to the, uh, the necessary amounts of the gas. The effectiveness of the bromine-chlorine combination was made even more so by, in the Eastern Front where the Germans were facing off with the Russians and Polish allies. In the Eastern Front, the Germans knew that these poorer, um, less well-equipped Russian soldiers would likely not have protective gas masks. The, uh, the most that they would have had at this point would be these kind of like f really crappy cloth masks that were totally in, un, you know, ill-suited for fending off any real uh, modern chemical strike. On the day of the gas attack, the Russian men scrambled around the fort trying to find anything that they could try and stuff in front of their face to keep themselves from inhaling this toxic gas that was being unleashed upon them. And at first, they would try and grab uh, sheets or cloth, whatever they could find. They'd soak it, and then they'd... Uh, and this had worked, or not worked, but it had been some kind of a, a successful barrier to the gas in other parts of the Allied front. So in the Western front, they'd done this on a couple of occasions when they had been struck by a surprise gas strike. But the problem with the Russian position is that these men had been... Uh, this, they were in a fort that had been under siege for quite some time, and so they, they were low on water. Um, so what they ended up having to do in some cases is they would have taken their own shirts off or their undershirts or found rags or whatever cloth strips that they could find, soak them in their own urine, and then improvise breathing masks from that. As the gas started to really take hold, you had these blood-drenched, covered uh, Russian and Polish soldiers stumbling around with urine-soaked rags covering their faces, but it really didn't do anything, so you still had these men just pouring blood from their eyes, 
pouring, you know, blood from their mouths, uh, coughing up big chunks of, of mucous membrane and, and even pieces of their own lungs. The, the, the chlorine and bromine gas was starting to melt away their flesh and, and dissolve parts of their, um, parts of their respiratory system. It was a horrific, horrific experience for these men. And the German soldiers that were on the other sides, the ones responsible for releasing the gas, well, they were, uh, they really thought that they were, would be entering a completely decimated fortress once they got there. And Fort Oswick, the, the fortress that they were invading and trying to get, was not particularly formidable as a fortress. It had been held for quite some time, and it was definitely not an easy pushover fight for the Germans, but it really didn't have a whole lot of strategic value other than its location. Like most forts, it was placed in a very good, strong position, and so the Germans wanted to, uh, to, to grab that land and be able to control the surrounding area, knowing full well that the fort itself was not a particular jewel in the crown. So the goal was that they would gas out the Russians and Polish, enter the fortress now, and there would be nobody there to stop them, that they would be totally fine, walk right in, take the keys, and clear out the dead bodies and be done. What actually happened is that they got across the no-man's-land area, got into the fortress, and they were met by a bunch of bleeding gory, foaming at the mouth, monstrosities. The, the burns that these men had gotten from, the Russian soldiers had gotten from the chemicals really uh, ripped the insides of these Russian soldiers out. And, and the, the Germans, at this point, they walk in and they see this and it looks like uh, they were about to be fighting the the zombies from a, a George Romero movie or The Walking Dead or something and and in fact this is where the the name of this battle which is the uh, attack of the dead men or the attack of the dead men uh, at Fort Oswick this is where it comes from is these Germans truly believed that they were fighting undead an interesting story that I came upon when I was researching this is a story of a, a woman who was talking about her great-grandfather, and on his deathbed, he was muttering that the undead, the undead man, the undead man, he's coming for me. And, uh, and then he apparently died, but I don't know if that's true. It sounded a little uh, dramatic to me, but it was an interesting little story, and I would assume that some of the German soldiers that survived this uh, harrowing experience would probably have had that feeling as they lay dying many years after. What the Germans didn't realize was that even though they planned on entering the fortress and having uh, nobody to face, the Russians knew that they would likely die as well. So both the Germans and the Russians knew that the men that were being gassed were going to die. What the Germans didn't realize is that the Russians had made up a plan. They dragged the tiny remnants of men together that could still stand and carry arms. And as the Germans marched forward and, and started to uh, get towards the fort, the Russians actually fixed bayonets and charged the Germans. So I can't really imagine it. I, I, it's actually, um, it's kind of a fun exercise of the imagination to picture this, but 
what you have is because the the gas attack happens around 4 a.m. And within minutes, you have men dying. And then over the next few hours, you have whole companies perishing. You have uh, a few men left. And these these survivors, somewhere between 60 and 100 men, they are chasing, or, well, they are charging into 7,000 German infantry with bayonets and and, you know, coughing up their own lungs, their eyes melting in the sockets, and somehow they're able to pluck together enough energy to go ahead and and go on the offensive. As this little ragtag group of, of defenders neared the Germans, the Germans got to see for the first time the actual results of what their gas attack could do to a, uh, a person. And the just horrific toll that it took on these Russians terrified the Germans, partially because of just how disgusting and, and, and destroyed they looked as people, but also because if they figured, well, if these Russians can survive this, then they can survive anything. So the Germans turn tail and they just uh, they absolutely book it out of there and they don't even... Um, stick around to destroy or, or hang on to their machine guns. They drop as much heavy stuff as they can. They even end up falling and tripping into their own uh, wire traps, and they they get caught up in their own barbed wire and suffer some casualties from just running away from these Russians, this piddling hundred-count Russian men, who are, by the way, again, they they are all dying on their feet as they move forward. So now the, the Russians are successful. The Germans have been held off. The Russians hold their position. But the men that had been uh, exposed to extremely high levels of the gas, they all uh, perish. They all die. The toll eventually is taken, and it's somewhere around 200 to 215 soldiers that have died in the gas attack. And the Russian government or the Russian military orders an evacuation. As the Russians are evacuating the survivors, anybody that wasn't exposed to lethal amounts, um, they destroy the fortress at Oswick and leave, get back to uh, safety and leave the Germans with nothing but casualties and a failure to, to get the objective, uh, which was the fort itself. Interesting side aspect of this battle is that the Germans who survived went back and spread wild stories of these Russians who who could survive anything and who could live through absolutely the most horrific injuries and still fight on and carry the attack. And this idea of the unbeatable Russian, the Russian who... who moves past anything and survives at all costs to carry the fight to the enemy has kind of become a staple in our general, um, our, our concept of what a Russian soldier is like. And obviously, you know, there's good reason for it in, in many cases, but this particular battle is, is a part of that little um, collective understanding of, of what it is to be a Russian soldier. And there's a Russian song titled The Russians Won't Surrender, which was eventually written, and it gives this account. It goes, But tens of soldiers hadn't reconciled to fate. Burned to the bones, they rushed to the battle. And enemy has flown. The fear drove away the last, who have never seen the attack of the dead. 
Battle of Shiloh is really famous in the American Civil War. It's one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, and it kind of gave rise to the eventual victor uh, of the Union side, General Ulysses S. Grant. It was at Shiloh that he kind of cut his teeth and started to be taken seriously and gained some notoriety as one of the only or one of the more successful and only real fighters in the Union general pool. In fact, it's at the Battle of Shiloh, I believe, that Abraham Lincoln starts to take notice, and he would go on to say of Grant that, uh, quote, I like this man, he fights, end quote. As Grant is mustering his force near Shiloh, the Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston is gathering his troops near Corinth, Mississippi. And Johnston is supposedly the most important general in the Confederate Army. In fact, he is considered to be the most talented and gifted of all of the Southern generals, which is interesting because we know of Lee, but there's a particular reason, and we'll get there. So Johnston launches a surprise attack on April 6th, 1862, and it puts a lot of pressure on the Union forces. They're somewhat taken by surprise. Uh, The only general on the Union side to kind of figure out what was going on was Sherman, and he is, uh, it's at Shiloh that he and Grant start to really build this relationship that would eventually take them through the Civil War and be one of the more successful partnerships in military history. So Sherman kind of figures out what's going on. He gets Grant, the two of them kind of stabilize their position. And during the night of the 6th, the Union forces receive 20,000 reinforcements. And these are led by a Don Carlos Buell. The Union forces kind of go on the offensive the next day and, and resume the fighting, which is a very tough type of fighting. The terrain is is kind of a lot of undergrowth and tangled forest and very tough terrain to fight in. The fog of war is extremely thick in this particular area. There's not a a lot of great height to get an idea of where your position's at. Um, There's not really much in the way of railroads. Um, So it's very difficult for Grant to understand what's happening, but he's able to kind of reassert dominance of the battlefield because of his overwhelming uh, reinforcements of of 20,000 men in the night. However, the victory at Shiloh is extremely costly for for both sides. In fact, there's about 20,000 casualties between the two sides during the battle. On the night of April 7th, after the fighting was over, there was a lot of wounded men left over in the middle of the two armies. So in this kind of no man's land where everyone's kind of afraid if, if you... There's a couple reasons. First off, if an individual goes out there to grab people, he's afraid he's going to get picked off by an enemy. The same kind of goes for a larger group. So if a, if a brigade or, or a, uh, any large group of men tries to go out into this middle ground, the fear is that they might come into contact with another, and then you have a contact battle occurring. So two sides stumbling upon each other, and then they escalate, and it becomes another battle 
both sides are too exhausted, too bloody from the earlier fighting to want that. So these poor guys are kind of left out in the open in this muddy field in between the two armies, and they're waiting for rescue, they're waiting for daylight. And a lot of them, most likely, I would assume, had some serious... I don't know, I mean, come to Jesus is what comes to my mind, but a, a lot of these guys would have been extremely religious, so sure, um, a lot of these soldiers probably had a come to Jesus moment where they realized that the end was near or, on, uh, you know, not far away, and so they were probably praying and, and hoping and and calling out for loved ones and whatever might have been the case, but some of these men noticed that as they took stock of their wounds, if they looked down at the, the musket hole through their stomach or the big giant sl saber slash through their arm or the puncture wound in their foot, there was this kind of weird green glow that was coming up from the wound in the dark. It was, it was this greenish-blue color. The men at the time obviously have no explanation for this glow. Doctors were soon after the battle discovered that the soldiers, these, these men that saw this, this glow around their wound, amazingly had a much higher chance of survival than soldiers who didn't. And not only that, they also seemed to have a lot lower rates of, of infection. Even stranger than that, their injuries, no matter what they might be, seem to have healed faster than their non-glowing counterparts. Now, that's extremely strange. So this unexplained phenomena, this, this greenish-blue glow that appears to make men healthy and stronger faster, eventually gets the name the Angel's Glow. Angel's Glow was a mystery for 139 years. It was not any kind of divine intervention or spiritual protection or any alien goo or anything like that. What we eventually find out is that a, uh, a young man named Bill Martin, a 17-year-old high school kid, goes on a tour of the Battle of Shiloh in 2001. And he learns about this angel glow, this bizarre mystery of the battlefield. And as part of a school project, a, a science project, he, his mother was a, um, a scientist. A, I want to say she was a biologist or something. And so his mom and him decide to uh, do a school project on this angel's glow. They do a deep dive. They identify various bacteria that glow in the dark. And then they kind of go through one by one and decide, all right, is it this one? Is it this one? Nope. This one? Nope. This one? And it's an exhaustive search trying to cross-reference with the uh, what little historical data that they had to try and narrow down exactly what kind of bacteria would have been present at Shiloh in 1862. Well, it turns out there was exactly that kind of proper bacteria to create this bioilluminescent. So Martin and his mom detected or deduced that at Shiloh there would have been a presence of what's called nematodes. And these nematodes are parasitic worms that burrow into the uh, blood vessels of larvae. 
So around wounds at a battlefield like at Shiloh, you would have had flies, flies, you know, dropping eggs and leaving larvae. The larvae would eventually hatch and then feed on the, uh, they, basically they hatch and then they vomit up this bacteria. The bacteria then produces a chemical that's going to um, kill the host and kind of kill any bacteria around it so that the larva can eat. So it's producing food for the larva. So the bacteria produces this faint greenish glow, the blue-green glow that these men had reported. Once the, the nematodes have vomited up all this bacteria, the hosts that the bacteria has infected all die and are eaten by the larva. The nematodes um, begin to move on to the next host. Uh, so Martins and his mom, they came up with this idea that in addition to producing that particular glow, the bacteria also most likely was responsible for the increased survival rate. The chemicals that are produced by this bacteria while it eats these little microorganisms probably also consumed all these other bacterias that would have caused like gangrene and infection. And so as, uh, as this bacteria is creating this weird greenish glow, uh, it's also cleaning or essentially cleaning the, the wounds of these soldiers. What's most interesting to me is that the bacteria, in the particular bacteria that we're talking about, apparently is a very, um, it requires a very specific environment to thrive in. And the human body is way, way too hot. But the really great research work done by the uh, young man Martin and his mom, they are able to figure out that this bacteria really would have been a happy little camper on a cool night in April near swampy terrain as the nighttime in, in this area by the river would have dropped fairly low enough and, and in fact would have dropped low enough to cause hypothermia. So not only is it a very dangerous um, temperature and dangerous area or environment for these soldiers to be wounded and probably thirsty and hungry, and now they're probably freezing. But on the other hand, if you have a bullet wound, you might last the night with hypothermia uh, if you've got the bacteria protecting or, you know, cleaning out your bullet wound. If you uh, if the temperature's up a little, a few degrees, and you don't get hypothermia, well, that bacteria is not going to be cleaning your bullet hole. And especially in the Civil War, as we all know, medicine was not exactly uh, a soldier's best friend. Well, if you didn't have that green glow, that angel's glow, cleaning your bullet wound, no matter how warm you were that night, you probably ended up dead the next day. So our last little spooky kind of tale comes from a gentleman that goes by Orner 100 on Instagram. When I put out that I was looking for ghost stories or unexplained or mysteries from history and warfare, um, I got a great many responses, but this was, this was particularly interesting to me because it touches on a few different things that I like. Um, the first aspect, it was personalized, and clearly there's a connection between this young man and his grandfather. Um, I like that a lot. The other thing that I like is that I'm a believer, a very strong believer in 
of traumatic events really imprinting themselves on people and places and things. In fact, that's what I think hauntings are. It's almost a form of like paranormal PTSD where something happens in someone's life, they carry it forever. There's nothing that they can do to get rid of that kind of bugbearer, get rid of that demon, and eventually it takes them to somewhere dark. Orner writes, My grandpa served in the Israeli 51st Golani Brigade during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Egyptians hammered us pretty well at first, but the IDF consolidated and we drove them back over the Suez Canal. However, by doing so, we encircled the entire Egyptian Third Army, which, for some reason, decided to not bring adequate water supplies for a war in the desert. So the soldiers would go down to the saltwater marshes, and these Egyptian soldiers would drink the salty water. That's how thirsty they were. Well, the marshes were full of extremely dry sugarcane, and so my grandpa and his team would fire white phosphorus into the marshes, effectively setting the Egyptians on fire. My grandpa told me he heard their screams every single time he closed his eyes. He always said he died on Yom Kippur. The craziest part is that he passed away one year ago, exactly on Yom Kippur 2018. Thank you.